The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and Ring TV. My guest on this episode is one of the best uh, writers and commentators in the business, a friend I've known for many years, Steve Farhood. Uh, We go into uh, Steve's background, you know, growing up in New York City and getting his first job at, at London Publishing um, writing about boxing and wrestling and, and starting KO Magazine, becoming the editor of The Ring and his time on, on as a commentator on Showbox and, and Broadway Boxing. We also get into uh, the Shields Hammer fight and the significance of it uh, for women's boxing and also kind of the state of the game and, and, and a lot of the fights coming up. And Steve gives his thoughts on, on fights uh, from April, May and, and June. Really enjoyable conversation. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. It's my pleasure to have as my guest on this episode, a true gentleman of the sport, a 2017 inductee into the International Boxing Hall of Fame and three-time honoree of the Boxing Writers Association of America. Also happens to be my favorite boxing writer and commentator, Mr. Steve Farhood. Welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast. Thanks for having me on, Kurt. It's a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> well, hey, you know, it's great to uh, to flip the script here. Uh, you know, this time around, uh, I get to interview you and, and ask you the tough questions. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so Exactly. Uh, so, uh, no, it should be fun. Um, so, yeah, let, you know, let's get into your background. I mean, you're, you're uh, I live in Brooklyn. You were, you were born in Brooklyn, youngest of four. Sure. Um, what was it like growing up in Brooklyn? Well, uh, it was idyllic, really. I mean, Bay Ridge was uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn was a, a melting pot, and uh, you know, it was an era where you know, being a young kid who liked to play ball, you know, I leave the house early in the morning and you know, come back late at night, and no one knew that no one knew to worry or anything, and it was right. it was a safe neighborhood, and I just play ball all day in uh, Fort Hamilton Park, you know, where the high school is, and uh, you know, I kind of wanted to hang out with my older brother and sisters. And of course they wanted no part of me because there was a pretty good age difference. Mm. And, uh, I, I had a great childhood, you know, I was a look from a lower middle-class family, but I'll tell you, we didn't know what we didn't have. So, uh, we were very happy and I lived in Brooklyn until I was 12 and moved to Manhattan and I've been there ever since. So right. I'm a city rat, Kurt. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, funny. City rat. that's funny. I, I come from like a family of, I have three and my, my brothers were all pretty spaced apart. We're about six, seven years apart. Uh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you went to Stuyvesant high school though. That's, that's like the premier public, uh, high school in, in New York. And, and I know that because I, I just toured it, um, because my oldest daughter is going through the whole, or high school application process. So we took a look at Stuyvesant, which is a uh, great, great sure. high school. Great, great high school. She ended yeah, up. Yeah, it was. Go ahead. It was, uh, it, it was, it's a great school. Um, you know, it was all boys for a long time. And when I got there, I started in, I don't know, 71, I guess I graduated in 74. So it's probably about 71 that I was in 10th grade and they had just let, let girls in. 
So it was a very interesting time there because, uh, you know, a bunch of boys going through puberty and, and about six <laughs> girls per class. You never saw six girls get so much attention in your life. But it was a great school. It wasn't really the right school for me because I was an English guy, you know, a word guy. I, mm. I liked literature. I liked writing. I liked journalism even back then. And it's a math and science high school. And when it came to things like physics, I was lost, Kurt. I mean, lost. <laughs> so somehow I graduated and was able to go to college. I don't know how, but uh, it was, it's a great school. And I can honestly say I'm more proud of the fact that I went to Stuyvesant than I am about, you know, about college or anything like that. Well, you went to NYU, which which is a, a damn good school. I mean, you know, uh, my my wife definitely would not want to hear you say bad things about NYU. She, <laughs> she went well, there you undergrad. Know, you're a little younger than me, you know. And and NYU in my day was was a very different school than it is now. Because in my day, it was a commuter school. You know, there were very very few dorms. Just a few, a couple hundred kids lived on campus, and I walked to college and walked home every day. So it was almost mm. like an extension of high school for me. But um, I enjoyed it. I was able to study journalism. But, you know, at the time I worked at a local newspaper and, and I can honestly say that I learned more working at that cheesy local newspaper, which still exists, than I did in college. You know, writing is something you have to you have to go do, you know, and become, get a journalism degree. You have to get, you have to practice it. You can't you can't learn it in a classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean. Still though, you went to you, you 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 went to high school and undergraduate in the 1970s in New York City. I mean, it's definitely a different New York than it is now. I mean, that must have been uh, pretty crazy. Oh, oh, oh yeah, very <laughs> different. You know, you know, you you only know what you know as a kid. You can't, it, you know. But but of course, years later, decades later, there's perspective which you didn't have at the time. New York City was a pit in the 70s, <laughs> and 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 I reveled in it. You know, right. Times Square was was disgusting. It was all prostitutes and 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 the drug addicts. Right, and, and porn. Uh, you know, there were hookers in the street all over the place and porn. And 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 you know, I didn't know any better. I thought this was normal. You know, living and the city was dirty. And there were places that you know, my, my wife and I'll go now, Tompkins Square Park. You know, in Alphabet City or you know uh, Madison Square Park on Twenty Third Madison, where you know when I was a kid, we knew better. We had street smarts, and we knew better than to go near it. So the city's changed for the better in a lot of ways. And of course, one of the ways it's changed is gentrification. And you can argue that's not always the best thing, but um, it is a very different city today than it was when I grew up in it. Absolutely. 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 So as a as a sports fan, uh, you know, you ended up uh, getting a job at Stanley Weston's uh, London Publishing in, in 1979. So and you worked alongside a future New York State Athletic Commissioner uh, Randy Gordon, um, yeah. Which uh, I, I heard you on Woodsy's podcast. I mean, I know you've got like a million great stories from writing for uh, for wrestling and boxing and and so on. Uh, talk about that. Talk about getting uh, hired out of out of college uh, by Stanley Weston. Well, you know, unlike uh, a lot of people who end up covering boxing, I was not a huge boxing fan. I wasn't aiming to work for a boxing magazine or be a boxing writer. I just happened to get a job. You know, I applied to a bunch of newspapers, got rejected, and ended up getting this job as a copy editor at London Publishing. And and in the beginning, I was working as much on the wrestling magazines as I was the boxing. And that made it so much fun. I mean, it was just, it was creative writing, and it was great. And our office was a bunch of young writers, and we were loosey-goosey. It was a great atmosphere to work in. And, you know, I learned a lot of boxing from Randy, 
before he left to go to the the new ring magazine which Bert Sugar had had acquired right. and uh I learned a lot and the files were such a great teacher you know we had these files and then years later of course we added the ring files when when my company bought the ring magazine so the files were my were my teachers you know the mm. photo files I'd look and who was Pepino Cuevas I never heard of him but I'd look at the files and I'd look at Eusebio Pedroza and I'd look at fighters I knew like Joe Frazier and Ali and everything and and I learned a lot from the files both the clip files and the photo files and they were great teachers. And I, to this day, if you stuck me there, I, I could spend three hours like, like some people can in a bookstore or a library, just looking at the old stuff. And it was, it was a great teacher for me because I didn't know the game inside out. You know, I was 21 years old and like anybody that age at the time, I knew Ali and Frazier and Foreman, you know, that was boxing in America was the heavyweight division in the seventies. There was nothing else. Right. So uh, it was it was a weird time to think about. I mean, there was a time and people are shocked by this, but there was a time I think, Kurt, it was 1976 where there was literally one world champion who was American. And that was Ali. Mm. It was just before like Danny Lopez and every other champion. You know, it was a big Hispanic influx at the time because the alphabets, the B.A. and the B.C. were running boxing. Right. And uh, boxing outside of the heavyweight division, boxing was was very much not an American sport. Mm. You know, Duran and Manzone, probably the best fighters of the decade. And uh, that, that's, uh, you know, it was for, for a young kid who was a sports fan. Boxing was not the obvious go, go-to sport, you know, but uh, I came to love it pretty quickly. Well, that, I mean, that, that, that's, that's great insight because, uh, yeah, 76 obviously was a really magical year and that you had, uh, right. you know, the 76 Olympic team and Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, you know, starring uh, in the Olympics. You had the movie Rocky. And uh, right. things started things started to change at that point. But it's amazing. Yeah, you're talking about how how young you were, and yet, you know, 1980, you get to start um, Ko Magazine, which obviously that was not common for a man in his early 20s to start his own major boxing magazine. So tell me about that process. How that how that came about. Well, we were we were one man staff um, after Randy left. Uh, you know, I was it. <laughs> and uh, we decided to put out KO. And it was a challenge because the ring was so established. Right. Now, the ring, of course, in 77 had the big rating scandal. And it was at a low point. But then when Bert Sugar took it over, it got a lot of play because Bert was a bigger-than-life personality. Right. And we said, we can put out a different kind of boxing magazine. And we did with KO. And, and Kurt, to be honest with you, I'm more proud of the fact that we put out KO for as long as we did and did as well as we did in competing with the ring as anything I've done professionally, because I look back at those magazines and they were really chock full of stuff. And, um, I loved it. It was a great magazine. Uh, it was a little different, I think. And, uh, we were able to compete with the ring, which wasn't easy to do, as I said. So loved KO. It killed me when, when they, when the company long after I was gone, when the company dis disbanded the, the magazine. Right. And, uh, I, I love looking back at those magazines because it was also, let's face it, it was a great time for boxing. There Absolutely. Was a, I mean, tremendous time. You know? <laughs> I mean, just amazing fighters. And, and by the way, KO magazine was, you know, I, I was, you know, a teenager, a uh, young teenager when KO started and, and just getting into the sport of boxing. And I was absolutely, it was, I loved it. I, I was like my absolute favorite magazine. Cause you know, not only was it a great time, I mean, you had Sugar Ray, Le you, know, you know, all these amazing fighters, you know, at or near their primes. You had Sugar Ray Leonard, right. Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns, Duran, Aaron Pryor, Alexis Arguello, Larry Holmes, Michael Spinks, Salvador Sanchez, Jeff Chandler, Donald Curry, Mike McCallum, you know, and in the mid mid eighties, right. Mike Tyson. 
I mean, you know, one of the things and I all love accessible all on TV. Uh, well, that's it, all on TV, and and you know, one of the things I really loved about Ko being a, a teenager and a huge boxing fan, you guys had those awesome posters that I had all, that I ended right. up putting all over my bedroom wall, and and the, <laughs> the 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 best thing about it for me was the Ko interview. And you got most of the guys I mentioned above. You 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 got them to sit for one of those interviews. So tell me about some of the more memorable uh, KO interviews that you did. Oh, they were great because they were long form, you know. Um, and it's funny. The only person we got Ali, we got Leonard, we got you know all of them. The only person we ever tried to get who we couldn't get for an interview, he wouldn't do it, was Howard Cosell. Oh wow, that was the only one we couldn't get. Mm. Um, but the, the interviews are great. I, I, I have memories of, uh, of, of Mike Rossman. I think we did an interview with him. It might've been for a feature story. I'm not sure. And I interviewed him in Russell Peltz's office in Philadelphia. And I was late because Amtrak was late. Nothing I could do. I'm, I'm habitually punctual, but for this, I was late and Mike Rossman was really pissed off. (laughs) We go into it. Russell puts us in a room to do the interview and I turn on the tape recorder and Rossman says, you know, Steve, I could turn these lights off right now and kick the crap out of you and nobody would know it. <laughs> this is a great way to start an interview, <laughs> like getting off on the right foot, right? So I, I remember that because I, it still gives me chills. I'm, I'm still, you know, self-defensive about it. But um, yeah, the KO interviews were great and the centerfold was great. And I get a kick out of seeing boxing gyms now where occasionally, even though it's 30, 40 years ago, 40 right. years ago, actually, you still see the KO centerfold, right. you know, on walls and gyms. Danny Lopez was our first one. I remember that very well. And, uh, you know, we spent as much time focused on getting photo shoots as we did on getting interviews because that, that centerfold had to be a different champion every month. And right. sometimes it was tough, you know, right. but it was, uh, it was great. And I remember one time, just a memory of shooting the uh, centerfolds. One time we, we were shooting, I think we were in Reno for some reason, and we were shooting Bobby Chacon and Jerry Cooney. And we had one pair of trunks between them. So they have to wear the same pair of trunks. Now you put Bobby Chacon and Jerry Cooney's trunks and you have to do some pretty quick uh, tailoring. Let's put it that way. So that was kind of, uh, that was a fun day. That is hilarious. That's hilarious. So, yeah, um, it's interesting. Well, you know, around 89, I guess, or 90, you know, the the ring fell into, you know, uh, some financial troubles and Stanley Weston acquired it. And uh, so they, they, switched you or i guess you became editor-in-chief of the ring now were you working on both ko and the ring at that time or were you full-time on the ring at that point well most of my time went to the ring at that point i still edited ko as well but we had jeff ryan and and jeff i know you're familiar with jeff right. um, jeff was just such an outstanding writer and right. and he took a lot of you know he took a lot of the responsibility and at that point we had a staff you know we had bobby cassidy who was a great boxing guy oh, bobby's a journalist. A, yeah he's an great guy bobby's too. the best yeah yeah one of the best and we had you know we had a couple other people at the time so we had a staff at, at that point of of a good four, five people which for us was a huge staff just editorial <laughs> and um you know, even though the ring was mostly freelance writers um, that I would hire, um, the KO magazine and the other magazine, we usually had three that we were putting out every month, um, were usually, uh, you know, mostly in staff writing. So having Jeff there was great. He's still probably the best writer I've ever worked with and a uh, pleasure to, to edit his his copy. And uh, so I, I worked mostly on ring and uh, it was it was something getting that magazine because Everybody assumed that Jerry Buss, Dr. Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers and Kings at the time, was going to buy the magazine. Mm. And my boss sent his guy in, and Dave DeBusher was the owner, um, along with two other guys, and kind of snuck in there and bought it 
suddenly. And all of a sudden, one day, our boss came in and said, guys, we just bought the Ring magazine. And we were shocked as hell. And we realized we had a lot of work ahead of us because now we had a, yet another magazine to put out. Wow. Hold on. So Dave DeBusher was like London Publishing. Dave DeBusher was involved in that? No, London, Dave DeBusher owned the Ring. Oh, he owned the Ring. Yeah. Okay. And Bert, Bert was the publisher, but Bert worked for DeBusher and two other guys, ah. um, Chicago businessmen. And to, so they were the owners. And, you know, Bert was never the most responsible uh, <laughs> at, at boss in terms of finances. Right. So the magazine lost some money. And uh, that's when my guy stepped in and, and, and acquired it. Ah. So what's Jeff Ryan up to these days? I mean, is he, is he still writing or I haven't heard that name in a while? Yeah, he, he became a writer uh, heavily into running and ah. was writing for running magazines and stuff. And he's, he's a marathoner himself. So is his wife. And I had lunch with Jeff about maybe a year ago, two years ago, and I stay in touch with him and uh, just outstanding writer. Yeah, yeah, that that name I definitely remember. I remember him uh, him from KO. One of the things that you guys did at KO, too, that I don't think The Ring was doing at the time, and I don't think any boxing magazine was doing, you guys started the uh, Pound for Pound Top 10, like, from from the get, did you not? Or Yeah, I think uh, early 80s, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we might have been the first. I, I hope we are. If we are, I'll take credit for it, and I'll say Kurt Emhoff said we were the first. <laughs> um, so that's cool. But, yeah, that was, uh, I think we called it the Dynamite Dozen. Right. And uh, we rated the pound for pound. It might have been the first to do that. And what, what, God, which fighters we had to choose from, you know, it was fantastic. Oh, goodness. Leonard, yeah. Leonard was one for a long time. Then Hagler was one for a long time. And, right. you know, right. It, was, uh, it, was, it was an awesome lineup. Yeah, I was just looking through it. I think BoxRec has some of those preserved. And, yeah, it just, I mean, I was looking at the top 10 for like 1980 and 81. It was insane. Uh, you know, you, yeah, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of reasons for that, Kurt. I mean, some of it is just cyclical and there are going to be times that are better times than others, but you know, fighters fought more often in those days. And I think that that's, that's a key. Um, they were more familiar to us. So naturally with time, we view them differently than we do fighters who we were not as familiar with. And, um, you know, that exposure was tremendous. And, and I remember doing a graph starting with like Joe Lewis in the forties and, and Marciano and Robinson in the fifties and how many times the top fighters fought in a year. And the graph goes straight down, you know, right. it was five, six times and a long time ago. And then in the eighties, it was generally three to four times. Right. And then by the time you got to Tyson or Chavez or those guys, it became, you know, three and then, then it became two and now it's two borderline one. Right. So th- that, that doesn't help the game. You know, nobody gets better as a fighter by fighting less often. And, you know, boxing is the only sport, I've said this many times, the only sport that takes its biggest events and shows them to the fewest people. And that's not healthy for the sport. Yeah. It's always been that way, so. Right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I make the same point, too. It's like, you know, how how are people going to know you if they don't see you? You know, I mean. Exactly. If you're not out there defending the title at least three times a year, uh, you know, you're hurting your own marketability. Um, Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess you 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 were uh, editor in chief uh, of the Ring um, from eighty nine to ninety seven, and ninety seven uh, you left, and you know were freelancing for for a little while, and then uh, two thousand one you landed the gig as expert analyst on uh, Showbox. So tell me how that came about. Well, I still wonder how it came about because <laughs> I have a New York accent, I have a receding hairline. You know, I'm not Brad Pitt. <laughs> Although a lot of people think I am, but I'm not. And, uh, you know, I still got on television somehow. So, uh, you know, my, my attitude with TV, I mean, Jay Larkin at Showtime gave me a chance to do Showbox, a new series. 
And I got to work with Nick Charles, and that was awesome on many levels because Nick and I had been partners at uh, covering fights for CNN. And Nick was such a great broadcaster. I was nervous as hell when I started with Showbox. You know, I had done a lot of television before that, but all, you know, I had done ESPN. I had done a couple of Showtime shows, but I nothing really n- n- steady and a lot of stuff at a lower level. And, um, you know, I really learned quickly at Showbox and having Nick as a partner was a tremendous advantage. And uh, here we are, and you know, 19 years later, doing a fight uh, tonight with the Clarissa Shields and, and, and Christina Hammer, that's the Showbox crew, although it's a Showbox Showtime special edition fight. And uh, to have a series run for 19 years is, is special. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like it in boxing, Showbox being a, a prospect-based show. And right. I think we've, uh, we've been successful. You know, it's interesting because I, I was actually uh, I was I I was just coming into my own as a manager, probably around 2001. But I was still um, writing for MaxBoxing.com, so I, I covered the initial mm-hmm. press conference, and I just remember that the the press conference was like you know Showbox was really trying to differentiate itself from KO Nation, which was uh, HBO's kind of prospect, uh, <laughs> you know, um, right, show, right, and. Uh, and uh, it's funny that Showbox definitely uh, has has lasted, you know, this long, you know, from from beginning with. I mean, I think it was just it was main events and Frank Warren, right? Who uh, who were the yes, initial promoters? Exactly. Uh, who teamed? Yeah, up. and as a result, we went to England quite a bit in the beginning, right? And did a lot of shows in England and Scotland, and and uh, and uh, with the Frank Warren shows. And Frank also ran shows in uh, in New York. But I have to give all the credit to Gordon Hall because he's been the executive. Mm. And by television standards, we have a very special arrangement at Showbox because we have the same executive producer for 19 years, Gordon, who's the heart and soul of the show. Um, And we have the same producer, Rich Gawn, and the same director, Rick Phillips. And I've been part of it as an announcer, Um, you know, initially with Nick Charles and then a couple of other guys, Kurt Menefee, and and for the last seven years, Raul and and Barry. Uh, And uh, the the lack of change in, in, in personnel on the show it's very unusual for television, but it's it's really made us into a tight unit, and uh, you know we really love each other and look forward to every show. Absolutely, listen, and, and having had fighters, uh, you know, a couple of fighters on that show, and and dealing with sure. Gordon, I can tell you he is absolutely amazing. Like you ask for anything, it gets done. Like bang, I mean, Gordon is just amazing. Yep. I love Gordon Hall, great guy. He's the best. He's the best. He's the public perception of him is exactly what he is. He's a great guy. He's an honest guy. He's a hardworking guy. And again, without without Gordon, I'll tell you, I don't I don't know if Showbox would still be exist in existence. But uh, you know, he's he's just a joy to deal deal with. And and I think the boxing community thinks the same way as you do. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's there's a lot of people who believe that you, Barry and Raul, you're the best announcing team in the business. So. I mean, how many how many years have you guys been together at, at at this point? Barry and Raul both started uh, in 2012. Okay, and that's the same year Stephen Espinosa started as the, as our boss oh, at wow. Show Showtime. So uh, that was a, a big year for us. Um, yeah, Nick Nick worked until he got cancer, right? Pretty much around 2008 2009. Then we had Kurt Menefee for two years. We had Bernardo Suna, we had Mike Crispino, Al Bernstein filled in, which was great, great fun. Um, and then Barry became available because he had been at Fox and he stopped working, calling fights for them. And I said to David Dinkins, our executive producer, and, and Gordon, I said, uh, guys, Barry Tompkins is available. 
and everybody dropped the, what they were doing and said, let's get in touch with Barry. So, <laughs> you know, having, having worked with Nick for so many years and now Barry for so many years, I'm blessed, right. you know, because the, the, the blow by blow guy runs the show. It's his show. It's his train. He's the conductor. And Raul and I just, you know, take, go where Barry takes us. And Barry is so good at calling fights, you know, Absolutely. and uh, it remains as such. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, you know, people may be, you know, a lot of boxing fans may be too young to know that, you know, Barry was like, you know, not not the original guy on, on HBO, but he definitely, you know, did a lot of just amazing fights in, in the 80s, uh, you know, with uh, with HBO. It used to be him and Larry Merchant and Sugar Ray Leonard, which was a great team as well. Right. Um, yeah, we were we were talking about that yesterday, actually, at lunch. Uh, he, I guess the first blow-by-blow guy at HBO in the late seventies was Don, Don Duffy. Duffy yes, I remember that. You know, because uh, and and Barry was saying he would work as the host of the show with Ray Leonard, and Don Dunphy and Larry Merchant would call the fights. So that was the very beginning. But Barry was very lucky in that you know he was working. He worked at HBO during a time when there were so many great fights, right. and the network was just emerging, and they had the money to spend to get the big fights. And right. then you know Barry, as a result, Barry called some of the biggest fights in, in history. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I remember the uh, my my first the first HBO one I, was, I remember seeing was the the fight at Rawway between uh, it was Eddie Gregory at the time and James Scott. I was right, you know, and it was Don Dunphy and Larry Merchant and Sugar Ray Leonard. Calling. It was a great, great thing. A little, a little surreal, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, having Don Dunphy, the voice of boxing, the greatest announcer in history of sport, a radio guy, really calling a fight in a prison. You know, it was a, a little odd, but. Uh, only in the seventies, you know, Steve. Only in the nineteen seventies. The nineteen seventies were crazy like that. You, you you did things like that. You know, it's just, just a crazy decade. But uh, yeah, it really was. I think back because I covered one of those fights at Rahway. I covered the the Yaki Lopez fight mm. with James Scott, and I, I think back and I go, "Could this ever happen today?" And of course, the answer is no. It couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, Bryn, Bryn Jonathan Butler and I did a did an article on on James Scott right. a couple years ago. A great article, oh, yeah, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it, it it is really uh, interesting, you know, when you think about it. Yeah, it could not happen today, and and it's like, you know, what what's the comp for today? It would be like the you know the Dallas Cowboy, like the longest yard, you know, where where right. <laughs> where you got the prisoners playing the guards, but it would be instead of the guards, you've got like the Dallas Cowboys coming in to play, you know, the prison right. team. It's and 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 then the exactly. Steelers a couple months later. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a perfect analogy. <laughs> only in boxing. Only, sure. That's one only, of those only in boxing stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, is it true? I mean, I mean, I know you had an amazing streak with Showbox where you never missed a show. Did your hip surgery end that streak, or did you manage to to keep the streak going? No, I, I missed uh, I missed two shows. One was a boxing special edition, like like tonight's show is, so that doesn't count. But I did miss a show box uh, about a year and a half ago. I had hip replacement surgery, and I right. missed a show in California. So, yeah, I don't know how many shows there are. We're close to 300, but I did miss the one, and uh, that bugs me. <laughs> I'd like to think I was the Iron Man of the show, but uh, in the long run, missing one isn't too bad. Right. Good thing you didn't get Wally pipped. You know, you, you, you know they didn't. They didn't exactly. Replace you. <laughs> exactly. No, they Lou Gehrig about it all the time. <laughs> so uh, I guess you know just what one more question on on Showbox. Um, you know the the top three fights in Showbox history. What I mean, I'm sure you guys have had this on the show, but but uh, top three fights in Showbox history. What would they be? Wow. Well, <laughs> I think. Um... Most recently, we had a great fight with, um, and the names are escaping me. Hang on now. Um, 
Lopez? No, not Lopez. It was an absolute war. Baranchik and help me out here if you can. Oh, yeah. Baranchik yeah. and it wasn't just... Adam Lopez, was it? No. No, it wasn't Adam Lopez. He just fought. Yeah, we're both blanking on this one. I know. I... But it was, it was Ivan Baranchik and it was a war. Baranchik won the fight. Um, that might have been uh, the funny thing about Showbox is Kurt is that we've had a lot of great fights, of course, over three three hundred shows, but unbelievable first rounds. And to me, the most maybe the best fight lasted a little bit over a minute, which was Kendall Holt and Ricardo Torres. You had both ah. fighters down. You had a butt that no one saw. Right. You had a title change hands. It was all in one minute of the first right. round. Right. And then, and then of course the the uh, the famous double knockdown with with uh, Saku Powell um, and Bundridge. And Bundridge. Right. Right. First punch of the fight. They both go down. The referee <laughs> blows the call. Doesn't yeah. call it a double knockdown, but it clearly was. And then one more punch is landed by Saku, <laughs> and Bundridge is knocked out. All in. 20 seconds. Right. So I think first rounds are really the, have been the highlight of, of Showbox over the years. We've had some wild ones. We had a heavyweight fight that lasted, I think, 16 seconds. <laughs> uh, TJ Wilson, I want to say. So a lot of crazy first rounds. Um, and, and J. Don Codrington with Alan Green oh, in Oklahoma, yeah. where yeah. there was, you know, the fight lasted, I think, 30 seconds, maybe 20-something seconds, and then there was a riot in the ring. So it's the first rounds that I remember more than more than a long extended great fight. <laughs> yeah, that was Abel Ramos is who you, you were trying to Abel think Ramos. That's yeah, it, it was Branchick and Abel Ramos. But yeah, you know, um, I'd have to say that that Holt fight, Holt and Torres, that has to be the best one-minute fight ever. I mean, that was an yeah, exactly. unbelievable, unbelievable fight. Um, yeah, we, we didn't have time. We, you know, I know it took about six replays for us to realize that there had been a butt that was really more devastating than either knockdown. Right, and, right. uh it was just a wild fight. And then Kendall was kind of special to us. We really liked him a lot and we're very happy that he that he became a world champion. Yeah, Kendall Kendall definitely is a is another actually, actually a guy in my in in the apartment building that I live in uh, has shot a ton of documentary footage of of Kendall Holt. I wonder if he's ever going to oh, okay. put it together for a film, but uh but One day, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it'd make a great film. Um so Showbox, you not only do Showbox, but you do uh, something near and dear to my heart, the Broadway, you know, Lou DiBella's Broadway boxing shows, which a ton of fighters who I've managed have, have been on. And uh, sure. you guys have a great team there, too, Brian Custer and, and Brian Adams. You guys are uh, an amazing team. Um, I don't think I have to, uh, to ask you what the greatest fight in Broadway boxing history is because my guy won it. But uh, <laughs> Jeff Resto and Michael Warwick, too. I, I, oh, I would God, say. that's a long time ago, Kurt. That's right. That was one of the very first shows we ever did. And uh, it was a fantastic fight. And, and, you know, my memory, when you say great fights with Broadway Boxing, Brian Adams and I have been the announcers for the show from the very beginning. It's probably, I don't know, maybe 11 years or so now. And what I think of there, just like with, with, with Showbox, I think of first rounds. What I think of with with Broadway boxing is how many nights the f the show was stolen by a woman fighter. It's mm. happened again and again and again. It happened last week with Alicia Napoleon scoring a, a, a surprise, you know, two round knockout right. of her opponent. Right. And Sonia Lamonicus oh, stole a bunch yeah. of shows early on, a heavyweight, you know, from New York and, and Heather Hardy did the same. And, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the better memories of, of uh, Broadway boxing have been with the women fighting, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, that's that's a great that's a great segue into uh, what you're going to be covering uh, tonight. Um, 
Some are calling it the uh, the greatest uh, or the most important fight and maybe the biggest fight in women's boxing history. It's definitely up there with uh, Leila Ali and, and Christy Martin. Um, in terms of competitiveness, I'd say it's better than than Ali and, and Martin. Yes. Um, you know, how do you see the fight going in? Well, I, I think the word I'm using, and, and I'll talk about this on the show in a few hours, is most significant fight in women's boxing. Right. You know, Christy Martin and Leila Ali fought each other. They were huge names. There's no doubt about it. You can't deny that. But the fight was a physical mismatch because right. Christie obviously was much, much smaller and also past her prime. What we have tonight is two fighters who are in their primes, who are undefeated, who are multiple division and multiple time champions. And the reason this fight, I think, is clicking is is largely because of Clarissa's oversized personality. Yes, that's part of it. That's a big part of it and her credentials. But also because it's a fight. You know, right. Clarissa's a favorite. Don't get me wrong. She's she's a three-to-one favorite. But you really want to see it as a fight. And in that sense, it loses its tag as a women's fight, and it becomes just a fight. And if you're a believer in women's boxing, which I certainly am, I, I think that's all you can ask for. So this is not a destination. This is a, this is a launching pad for women's boxing. And uh, I love it. I've loved it ever since... I was at Deidre Gogarty, Christy Martin, you know, on the mm. Tyson undercard years ago. Right. And um, I feel that, you know, from a from a from the media's perspective, from a writer's perspective or a broadcaster's perspective, women's boxing is fantastic because I think the women. Not always as exciting as the men, granted, maybe not as big punchers by by nature, but the personalities, they bring a different side of 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 themselves to, to boxing than the men do. And. You know, Clarissa and Christina Hammer are a good example of that. Uh, I think the women tend to be more verbally adept than the men. Um, they sell themselves very well. The reason for getting into boxing is very often very different from men. And uh, I love women's boxing. And I, I think uh, tonight's fight is, is, is really, uh, you know, a, a stepping stone for them to gain more uh, a more universal acceptance. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that. I, I'll never forget. I think it was maybe the 2012 Olympics, or it might have been 2016. But Layla Ali was covering it for for one of the networks, and uh, they had uh, you know women's boxing. She was there to cover the women's boxing, and you know her. Uh, I forget who the sidekick announcer was, but he was just like, "Yeah, Layla, you know they they say that women's boxing that." Um, that the women are more fundamentally sound than the men. <laughs> Layla, Layla's like, you know, I just think in life women are more fundamentally sound than men. <laughs> I was That's like, funny. Oh, you did not go there, but she, I love right. Lolly. But yeah, she, that, that, That's that funny. Well, she you got to give her credit. She was, you know, obviously with that last name, she was the biggest star of her day and I give her a lot of credit cuz she she went into boxing. Her motives may have been different than most pe- most fighters. Um, I think she did it to gain a, a higher profile and it worked, but mm. she really didn't know what she was doing in the beginning and she became a pretty damn good fighter. Absolutely. Now the problem she had was she never fought her biggest rival and Wolf. Right. We never saw that fight. Right. And Christy Martin never fought Lucia Riker, her biggest rival. Although Christy did their times sort of overlapped, but not too much, but that's what's, that's what's attractive about shields and hammers that, they are fighting each other. Right. They, and uh, that's something women's boxing has missed. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, with Martin and Riker, they actually did have that fight scheduled, right? Million Dollar Lady, which would have, you know, when it came out right after the, the movie Million Dollar Baby. And that would have been amazing had they had they actually fought. But then Lucia tore her Achilles and it never came off. So that could. 2003, that... I think. Yeah. And, then, and Nick Charles and I were going to call the fight mm. um, for Top Rank. It was a Top Rank promotion. Right. And. We were so pumped up. And then, yeah, it was, I think, two weeks out 
Lucia never fought again. That was the, that was uh, right. that was the end of her career as a right. professional, which is a shame. I mean, it would have been a would have been a fascinating fight. Yeah, a lot of people think she's like the the best ever, and and you know, I I definitely remember that the, the the struggle is real with women's boxing because I I represented um, Melissa Salmon, you know, Lou Del Val's mm-hmm. uh, sister, and she had, sure. she had come up on some Don King cards. She was undefeated, like you know, Christy Martin had kind of refused to fight her, and she had gotten herself away from King, and uh, I was representing her and. Um, at the time, Tom Loeffler was representing um, Lucia Riker. I think this was around 2002, mm-hmm. 2003. And I called Tom. I said, "Are you? Would you be interested in 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 doing, um, you know, uh, Salomon versus uh, Riker?" He's like, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah, let's see if we can get on HBO." He's like, "Kurt, HBO doesn't do women's boxing." I'm like, <laughs> right. "I'm like seriously?" I said, "For a fight like this, you got two undefeated women. You know, maybe pound for pound. You know, top five. He's like, "Well, give it a shot." So, you know, next uh, press conference, I see Carrie Davis and, you know, I corner him and, and I'm like, Carrie, you know, you know, what do you think of, of doing Melissa Salmon and Lucia Riker be a great fight? You know, there's, there's other women's fighters out there, Christy Martin and all, you know, they could, he's like, no, nope. You know, he's like, HBO doesn't do women's boxing. <laughs> I was right, like, right. I was like, what? He's like, it's just not deep enough. There's not, there's not enough of a, a storyline afterwards. You know, we're about telling stories. He gave me this whole song and dance. I'm like, oh man. So. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. Timing wasn't right, right? Yeah, it's been a long time coming. And the irony of that story, of course, is that the last show on HBO involved two women's fights. <laughs> so that, that's Cecilia Brakus, and then I, I think Clarissa was on that show too. So uh, um, it, it's kind of ironic. But yeah, I, I it, it pat myself on the back a little bit or pat my company on the back a little bit. Showtime has been at the forefront of women's boxing. Showed a lot of Amanda Serrano fights. And, and right. uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I think that's uh, Katie Taylor was on as well. From uh, from Europe, and I think uh, Showtime well, Layla too. deserves Layla, a lot of credit. Layla, Layla was on Showtime. Layla was featured. Layla was on Showtime quite a bit, yeah, back in the uh, twenty years ago or so. So uh, yeah, it's uh, Showtime has always been uh, cutting edge with women's boxing, and tonight is the culmination of that. Right. Well, you know, and and again, the the, the struggle is real. I mean, you've got uh, Shields, and Shields has a great team behind her. I mean, you know, our friend and uh, Broadway boxing alum Dimitri Salida is is her promoter, and you know, her manager is Mark Taffet, you know, former head of HBO pay-per-view. I mean, these guys are both really trying hard to make her a crossover star. Um, great article in The New Yorker. I don't know if you uh, if you saw it by uh, Khalifa uh, Sine. Um, you know, the premise was basically that, that, you know, Shields has got two gold medals, you know, professional championships in two weight classes and just eight fights and, and – Still trying to create serious buzz, though, and, and get people to care about women's boxing. So, you know, why hasn't, you know, Clarissa Shields, you know, maybe despite her, you know, and despite her many accomplishments, uh, become like a crossover star like, say, you know, Ronda Rousey has done in, in MMA? I, I think part there there are multiple reasons I think, and I think she still can become a crossover star. Um, one of the reasons is there are a lot of men, probably mostly around my age, who simply will not give women's boxing a chance. They, they're anti-women's boxing, period. Hmm. And, you know, with, with time, a lot of people my age are going to, quote, unquote, die off, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's going to be a younger audience, and that younger audience, I think, will be more receptive to women's boxing in general. But I think that there are a lot of men, you know, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of women who are going to watch tonight's fight who, who would not watch Lomachenko or Wilder or anybody else. Right. But they'll watch because it's a woman fighting. There are also a lot of men who won't watch tonight because they're just anti-women's boxing. And, and I don't get that thinking, but I know it exists. So right. that's, that's part of it. The, the other reason I think is 
some people have been turned off, and I, I get it, by the fact that the 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 depth of the 160 and 168 pound divisions in women's boxing is very thin. Right. Um, Clarissa has had you know eight fights, and really, with the exception of the one knockdown round against Tana Gabriel's, has she really lost a round? Right. Probably not. So you know the fact that she's fighting Hammer, we knew this was a possibility all along. They had to fight each other because they're they're the two best fighters at this weight easily, and they're both very good and very accomplished. So it makes tonight's fight bigger. But what what preceded it, you know, ne- there wasn't necessarily that mu- that many good matchups to to whet the appetite of a, of a boxing fan. And I think maybe that hurt Clarissa's development as a star. But I think she has a lot of star power, and I think that she appeals to a certain demographic that has been un- underrepresented in boxing, which is y- y- young women, inner city women. Uh, women of color, and I think that's uh, it's wonderful that she's uh, becoming a you know a favorite of those people. Absolutely, absolutely. But you said you know it, it is a little thin uh, in her weight class, and it's you know it's kind of like where does the winner go from here? I mean, you've got you've got Cecilia Breckus, who's the the undisputed 147 pound champ, but she doesn't sound like she wants to move up in weight, not one pound. So, and I don't know if Clarissa or uh, or Christina can get down to 47. You know, Shields has beaten right. beaten all the top women at sixty eight, and possibly the best fighter at fifty four. And Hannah Gabriel's. I mean, the only fight out there that I kind of see that 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 would be interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, assuming that uh, that there's a decisive winner tonight and we don't have a rematch, uh, would have to be her her amateur rival, right? Uh, Savannah Marshall, who's the only Savannah Marshall, who's five and zero oh now. Yeah, right. She's the only one woman to defeat her in in. Shields' entire career. She beat her in like 2012 at the Amateur World Championships when Shields was a teenager. Right. So. Yeah, I think that, that well, you know, it, the, the depth, again, is thin at this weight. Well, I understand. Clarissa certainly would like to try to, and who knows if she can lose six more pounds and be effective to, to fight at 54. Right. But th- that's the obvious, you know, that's the obvious fight for her. And and money talks. And if Brakus, you know, Brakus has been mentioning Katie Taylor, she's been mentioning Cyborg, you right. know, money will talk. And if, if Clarissa wins and wins big tonight, then I think it's a whole new set of negotiations. Right. And Clarissa is going to be in a lot better shape. So who knows what kind of money they'll be. Um, break who's fights for a lot of money. You know, right. she's a big star in Europe. And uh, we'll, we'll see tonight is going to determine the, the, how much of a possibility a break and uh, shield showdown would be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, there's a lot of boxing coming up in the next uh, few months on on the four main uh, networks or, or apps or whatever you want to call it that are televising boxing these days. You know, ESPN, Fox, Showtime and the Zone. Um, mm-hmm. My friend Evan Rutkowski, who does the uh, Fistionados podcast. I don't know if you uh, listen to that, but he's uh, he's kind of posed the question, is there too much boxing on TV? You know, it's not even possible to to watch it all uh you know as someone who who's covered the sport when there was you know cable tv was in its infancy and you were watching boxing pretty much on major networks um you know what do you think of uh the the current you know milieu you've got uh you know just you know just i mean i'd like to go through the the, the fights with you but what do you, you know just in general what do you what are you thinking about the the current state of uh, televised boxing well you know it's 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 a great thing that there's so much interest from people with money to televise boxing. That's right. wonderful. And that has not always been the case. Right. But I think, what, what, you know, it's obviously a dangerous time because we don't want the sport to get too fractured, fractured, fractured to the point where, you know, 
Group A is not going to fight Group B, is not going to fight Group C, is not going to fight Group D. That, that's obviously dangerous. Usually, and, and Kurt, you know boxing history as well as I do, usually you know, money settles everything. And right. if there's enough money in a you know, Spence Crawford fight or a Joshua Wilder fight or whatever the matchup is, usually that'll take care of itself. You hope that's the case. You hope that you know, promoters want to make money. That's what they're in business for. Right. Um, fighters want legacies. And, and I think with a lot of these fighters, what I want to see is the fighter take control. Right. And if the fighter says to the promoter, I want Emhoff, mm-hmm. well, then it's the promoter's job to get Emhoff. Right. You know, make the fight. Who's the boss, the promoter or, or, the, or the fighter? I think the fighter should be the boss. You know, it's, it's a short career. You only have so much time to make money. And, and I think, you know, we need a little bit of a, of a sort of a market adjustment so that the fighters realize that and demand, you know, and Errol Spence is, is, is or, or Wilder or Joshua or whoever, they're in a position where they can dictate. You know, they're, they're powerful enough where they can dictate. And if the economics work, I think we'll end up seeing some of these fights. I certainly hope so, because, you know, we, we don't want to lose at a time like this when there's so much boxing on, as you said, we don't want to lose the best matchups. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been advocating for a, you know, the last year or so, you know, I wrote an article last October about, you know, how now is the time for a boxing league and everyone's like, oh, it's such a fantasy and all that. But the thing is, you know, you've got, you know, if if, if Mike Coppinger and, and Max Kellerman are to be believed, I mean, you know, you got Showtime with operating budgets, you know, between, you know, 50 and 60 million, you know, so that's like over $100 million. You've got ESPN at around, you know, $90 million for their budget. You know, DAZN was talking about having a $125 million budget, you know, just with Eddie Hearn. And, you know, who knows what they're paying, right. Golden Boy and Triple G and the World Boxing Super Series. So, I mean, you could have upwards of like $400 million, you know, in, in budget uh, between all the networks. Um, I, you know, I, it, it, I'm just like, it boggles my mind that, it, that at some point the light bulb doesn't go on with, with like Aram and, and Heyman and Hearn and, and Oscar to just say, you know, look at all of the other sports. They're organized. You know, you have fights, mm-hmm. fights leading to fights. You've got all of the, you know, this whole pool of money, you know, and, and you don't want to lose any of it. Rather than try and compete with, you know, Showtime, you know, put Showtime out of business, put the zone out of business. You know, how do we keep all the money in the sport and, and, and you know, take it to the next level? I mean, uh, to me, the World Boxing Super Series was like, you know, the, the model for the sport. I mean, it, you know, it's playoffs. Yeah. It's playoffs. And yeah, everything. exactly. Why don't we have a regular and, schedule every year or, or, you know, have five or six divisions, you know, that go every three years, you know, stagger, you know, alternate them um, and, and do tournaments. I mean, it, it seems like a no brainer. It does. I, I think, you know, this has been a problem in boxing for, for a long time, obviously. And there are a couple of reasons for it. I, I think, you know, the, the atmosphere of hating from promoter to promoter is, is a very negative thing that you don't see in other sports. And, and the other thing is, you know, there's, there's never been long-term thinking in boxing because there is no body to oversee the welfare of the sport. So what you have is you have companies and individuals, whether they're fighters, promoters, managers, whatever, who want to make money now. Right. And, and they're happy to make money and they're not concerned with the long-term. And a lot of them make money. You know, all these entities that we're talking about, a lot of them are going to make money. Right. So if you make money, why, why want change? You know, right. why, why, you know, and, and, and as a result of that, you know, I've always been in favor of a national commission, not a federal commission. Big difference. Right. I don't want the government. Government screws up everything it touches. So I don't want, I right. don't want them involved. Right. Absolutely. But a national commission would, would, would solve, you know, with a real boxing person as its head would solve a lot of these problems. And at least you'd have somebody as a go-to guy or a go-to company or a go-to 
board or jurisdiction, whatever you want to call it, to, to settle some of these things and look out for the long-term welfare of the sport. Because let's face it, Kurt, you know better than me, boxing for a long time was a major, major sport. Right. You know, you walk into a sports bar in New York City in the 50s and people were talking baseball and boxing right. and maybe horse racing. Right. You know, that's not the case anymore. Right. You know, in the early 80s when I started, boxing was front page news when there was a big pay-per-view closed circuit fight. Not the case anymore. So, you know, the sport has marginalized. It'll always be around. It's not going anywhere. And there's still nothing like a big fight. And the product is so great when it's done right. And that's why it won't go anywhere. But it, it, it should, you know, it should be in a healthier place. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, it just, it definitely needs to get organized. And I think, you know, because, you know, you, you've got the, the major players kind of are settled now, to me, that's even more reason to, to, to do something to preserve it, you know, and, 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 you know, we finally got all this money and, and it's settled. I mean, if you, <laughs> I mean, you know, putting, you know, competing like they are and being cutthroat and making it a zero-sum game just makes no sense. But at the same time, too, because everything's so siloed, you know, you, you know, it, to me, it's like it's diluting the product a little bit. You know, you've got all of these mm-hmm. fights, but, I mean, just in the upcoming schedule, you know, there's a lot of good fights. I mean, the, the first quarter, I thought, was, was pretty weak. You know, I mean, there were a couple of decent fights, mm-hmm. but, but you, know, you know, good fights, but, but definitely no, you know, absolute must-see fights and definitely no super fights, you know? Um, like the, you know, obviously Crawford, Spence, and and Joshua and Wilder, and um, you know Loma, uh, Mikey Garcia, you know, just it, it, mm. everyone's just kind of given up on them getting made. Um, you know, it's just I don't know something's you know it, it would be nice that you know I would say something's got to change. Of course, it doesn't have to change, but it would be nice to see that it, mm-hmm. that it did. But um, listen, let's let's go through. Um, I mean, the schedule is picking up over the next couple of months, and I wanted to get your opinion on uh, on on what are some good, but you know, not great fights, but good good fights, good fights. So mm-hmm. um, coming up, you've got uh, um, I guess uh, tonight, I guess competing with Showtime, you've got uh, Quillen and Truax and uh, Derevianchenko and and Kolke in 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 that eliminator. I mean, you've seen Sergey a couple times. What do you think of uh, Derevianchenko mm-hmm. Kolke? Uh, Dervinchenko is a really, really good fighter. He proved that when he fought, you know, Daniel Jacobs. And, and, uh, I think that, uh, the middleweight division needs some new faces. He's a relatively new face. I think he's the, probably one of the two or three best of the Eastern European fighters, at least, especially at that weight, uh, along with Selecki and a couple others to come along. And I expect him to win, uh, tonight. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, the, the middleweight division with, with Daniel Jacobs fighting Canelo and then Triple G presumably fighting the winner, um, it's sort of set. So it's, it's going to be a wait for, for those fighters, maybe even for Andre, you know, who's, who's a, an attractive uh, undefeated middleweight as well. So, you know, when you have these matchups, uh, when you have the big matchups, sometimes the players who are just under the surface uh, or not quite at the top are going to have to wait a little longer, and that can be frustrating especially with fighters fighting so rarely today, you know, you can have a year wait, a two year wait. Um, that might be the case with, with somebody like uh, Darabianchenko, but he certainly deserves another chance. And uh, I think he'll beat Kalkay tonight. Right, right, right. Um, you know, a week later at, at Madison square garden, a uh, big welterweight fight, you know, a guy who's considered by some, the pound for pound best in the sport, Terrence Crawford, uh, taking on Amir Khan. Um, you know, with Amir, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't like the way he looked in his last fight. Um, you know, I'm not expecting this to be ultra competitive, but you know, I'm I'm also hoping I'm going to be surprised and Amir brings the the, the best out of himself. Uh, how you see that one going? 
I, th- I think it might end up being your typical Crawford fight, which is Crawford giving away some rounds early, right. figuring his man out. You know, that's how he fights. Um, we, we all know that, you know, Crawford can punch, presumably still can punch a, a welter. He's relatively new to the weight. And we know about Khan's chin. And, you know, Khan is sort of a unique fighter. I don't think there's really anybody else like him in boxing. I, I always thought that he would have given Floyd Mayweather a very tough fight because of styles. You know, Khan, Khan's weakness is his chin. Mayweather was not a big puncher, although certainly an accurate puncher. Um, but, you know, that fight never got made, maybe maybe for that very reason. Maybe Floyd, you know, knew that Khan was dangerous. And I remember talking to Paulie Malignaggi, who, who fought Khan, and he said, the guy's speed is just, his jab and his speed are unbelievable. Right. So this is a fighter who physically, you know, although probably better at 140 than 147, physically, he can, at least for a few rounds, match Crawford. And I think it'll be a competitive fight for a while. But... You always have that issue with uh, with with Khan's chin, and you know Crawford. Uh, once he figures you out, he's right. a dangerous fighter. So it's hard to hard to pick an upset. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then you go April twenty sixth. Six days after that, you've got another really good fight in Sarisakad Sorungvisai against uh, Juan Francisco Estrada um, for the uh, WBC Junior Bantamweight title. These guys. Uh, Kind of rode the wave of uh, Tom Loeffler uh, bringing the Superflies over to to uh, the states and and getting that going. How do you see this? I and mean, the first fight was good, very good. One of the fights of the year last year. How do you see the rematch going? Well, I love the fight. I'm I'm a huge fan of the lighter weight classes, and 115 is about you know about as light as we're going to see in American television. <laughs> so I, I think the first fight was great. Um, you know, Strada claims he he was injured that he, he didn't have his mobility, and if that's the case, you know, an upset win for Estrada would not surprise me at all. He came pretty close the first time. He's just a beautiful boxer. I mean, he's one of the best in the world. Right. And, you know, he's proven that time and again. So an upset in that fight would not surprise me. You can't make Sorong Vasai a, a big favorite. Um, you know, the first fight was excellent. And and also you have, you know, Daniel Roman and, and TJ Doheny on the right. undercard right. in a unification fight at 122. And that that's an interesting fight, too, because that's a division that you have some good fighters as champions, but no one's really emerged as a clear number one. And that fight will give a little more, you know, a, a, a sort of a clear, a clear out the division a little bit and, make, and have us have a, a clear number one, which 122 needs. Right. You know, it almost cries out for a tournament, you know? <laughs> yeah, that division. <laughs> yeah, sure. well, well, you know, the, the Super Series has, has shown, you know, I mean, the Cruiserweight tournament, the initial Cruiserweight tournament was fantastic. Right. And the 140-pound tournament, if it if it does continue to go, as we hope it does, is going to be fantastic. So, you know, those tournaments are great. And, and they, they really, you know, I, I want to see Inoue and, and, and you know, all the, all the five, um, Baranchik and, and Progre, and there's so many good fighters in these tournaments that we want to see them keep going. I hope the money issues they've had, you know, go away. Yeah, to me, it, it boggles the mind that, you know, you've got the uh, zone throwing all this money at you know Hearn and and Triple G and 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 Golden Boy and you've got the World Boxing Super Series which to me is like the model for the sport and it's having money problems I'm like come on the zone step up <laughs> <laughs> but speaking well, of- they might have overshot you know they might have overshot they were spending pretty good and I don't know it's something about boxing the business of boxing that, that and then as a manager you can appreciate this and a lawyer it, it seems like. There's something about the sport that gets people who are smart businessmen, very often million millionaire businessmen, into burning money. You know, we've seen it so many times. Yes. You know, occasionally they even burn their own money as opposed to like Muhammad Ali Pro Sports or Harold Smith or whatever. But, um, 
you know, the, the, the economic, you, you wouldn't teach boxing business to any uh, graduate school <laughs> business students. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It, it just seems like, you know, the, 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 the amount of uh, waste and the amount of overspending is, is almost unique to boxing. Right, right. There's the old joke, you know, how do you get a million dollars in boxing? Uh, you start with five million. But, uh... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but there always seem to be, I don't want to call them suckers, but there always seem to be somebody, you know, who comes in and very often is usually successful in another venture right. or another industry and, and ends up with their pan, pants around their ankles, you know, in, in boxing. We've seen it a million times and, and probably will continue because, you know, it's, it's a sport where you can, if, if Kurt Emhoff has $20 billion and chooses a sport to make an impact in, well, he's not buying the Dallas Cowboys probably, and he's probably right. not buying the New York Yankees, but he can make an impact in boxing in five minutes. And, right. and that's one of the reasons boxing attracts these kind of people. Absolutely. No barrier to entry. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> so with, sp- speaking of the World Boxing Super Series, uh, Kirill Relic, Re- Regis Progray, how, how do you see that one going? Well, I'm not picking against Progray. I mean, he just looks like he's got it. You know, from the first time we had him on Showbox, um, he just, he, he shines. I mean, he's he's confident. He's, he adapts. I remember when he fought Julius Ndongo on, on a Showbox right. show. You know, he looked stunned, stumped after one round, and then in the second round, he destroyed the guy who was much taller. Um, he's good. You know, Relic is good, too. Relic's right. a good fighter, don't get me wrong. But I, th- I think Progray is going to emerge as, as the best 140-pounder in boxing. It wouldn't surprise me at all. He's very, very skilled, talented, good good in every way, and, and, and I think he just has that it factor, which a lot of top fighters don't have. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't wait. I mean, I, I know David McWater, who has uh, Ivan, and I know he's, <laughs> um, you know, having a lot of problems with the tournament. And I don't know if, you know, there's some, you know, third party offer that that's coming in that he wants to get Baranchik out for. But man, I really hope that that all of that comes off. But um, how do you see on, on the undercard of Progray and Relic, uh, Nonito Donaire, who, who pulled a huge upset against uh, Burnett last time out? Um, against Zolani Tete. How do you see that one going? I got a favorite Tete at this point. Donaire's a little faded and right. got a little lucky, let's yes, face it, in, yes. in winning the fight he he did. And then Tete is difficult to fight and, you know, skilled guy. And I, I think you, you have to lean that way. Donaire fighting pretty light. You know, it's pretty rare that a fighter his age with his experience sort of drops down in weight. Right. I don't know physically whether that's the best thing for him, but uh, he's look, he, he can punch, Donaire can punch, and, and he's experienced as all hell, but I got to go with Tete in that fight. Yeah, absolutely. And on Showtime, uh, same day, um, you know, with all, it's just like all these networks putting, you know, good fights on, really good fights. Um, you've got Robert Easter and Rancis Barthelme, um, uh, which is a really good matchup um, for, uh, I guess, the WBA regular lightweight title. Um, how do you see that one going? Two kind of gangly, uh, you know, tall guys, uh, going at it. Yeah. I, I think the, the WBA regular title part of it, we'll skip that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't I know. talk about that too much <laughs> because, because we all know, you know, that, that there's no need for regular titles, but the fact is they are there and, and, you know, whatever. But I, I think this is a, a legitimate matchup between two top 10 lightweights and you can't ask for more than that. Um, anytime two top 10 guys fight, it's it's worth watching, and you know Bartholomew is 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 awkward, um, awkward fighter. I, I I think that um, Easter with his size advantage, and you know we all tend to overrate a fighter's last fight in terms of significance. And Easter, you know, obviously got schooled a little bit by Mikey, but 
I, I think Easter probably will will uh, will be strong enough and and you know versatile enough because he can fight inside and outside to uh, to probably take that fight. Yeah, it's interesting because Bartholomew, you know, coming down and waiting, he also got schooled in his last fight. I mean, Relic just took him apart in the last fight. So this oh yeah, is badly. Two guys on the rebound. Exactly. Should be interesting. Well, then the big one coming up uh, yeah. in, the, in the middleweight division, you got Canelo and, and Danny Jacobs. Um, I know you know Danny very well. Um, you know, how do you see that one going? I mean, I think that's a really, really intriguing fight. Very intriguing. And, and all you got to do is see the two of them together to make it even more intriguing. Right. Because Daniel is so much bigger. Right. You know, Canelo is, is, you know, a guy that puts on a lot of weight after the weigh-in, but he's not. You know, uh, he's not a tall middleweight with a long reach, and and Daniel is. And let's face it, Daniel has a lot going for him. He's not only a big middleweight; he can punch and he can box. And he proved against Triple G that that he's at that level. Right. You know, so I, I think he's a very very live dog. Um, you know, Canelo's going to obviously have to make the fight come forward. And Canelo, geez, he's you know he's looked better and better and better. I mean, it's not the same fighter that fought Floyd all those years ago. He's just gotten a lot better. And, and I remember thinking, you know, years ago, eh, maybe he's not trained right. You know, against Floyd, he had no plan B. And, right. you know, maybe these Reynoso guys aren't so good. But, boy, has he improved. I mean, yes. he's a, just a, such a good boxer and a great counterpuncher. And, you know, it's not going to be an easy fight for Daniel. And, uh, you know, but uh, I, I do think Daniel's a very live underdog. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Can- Canelo's kind of the conventional wisdom, but yeah, it's just with Danny, you know, and I've, I've made this analogy before. I, I compare him to, you know, I remember reading a biography of Arthur Ashe when when I was a kid, and you know, he's mm-hmm. a guy who had tremendous talent on the tennis court, um, could hit every shot, but they said it's like, you know, like he he'd have a problem just because you know the, the ball would come and he'd have to like try and figure out of all the tools that he has which ones he's going to use to like hit the ball and yeah. like like Danny yeah, can do that's a great analogy all. that's a great analogy yeah yeah like tactically exactly. i don't know exactly and, and and at times yeah at times he's been very tentative in fights too tentative you know not aggressive enough um we've seen it and as a result some of his fights have gone more rounds than they should have Right. You know, but um, I think uh, I think that, hey, this is a tremendous opportunity. He did lose the Golovkin fight. Close fight. You want to make an argument that, you know, he could have won. Well, I I think Golovkin probably took it by a very small margin. But this is a tremendous opportunity because obviously a Golovkin rematch will be there. And he'd like to ruin the script. And the script is for, you know, Canelo Golovkin three, obviously. That's why uh, Dizon signed Golovkin. So we'll see. We'll see if Daniel can get in the way, so to speak. Absolutely. So a couple more fights. I mean, Jared Hurd and Julian Williams, which I think is a great, great matchup at, at junior middleweight. Uh, Hurd being a, a unified champ, WBA, IBF. Williams, you know, uh, rebounded from that loss to Charlo. How do you see that one going? It's a really interesting matchup. Jared Hurd, I'll watch him any day of the week. He's exciting. <laughs> um, you know, he's obviously a little bit of an aberration because he's a tall fighter who likes to mix it up and get close. And Julian Williams is going to go in with the same plan everybody has against Hurd, which is box, box, box. Right. And, you know, at some point, especially in the second half of the fight, he's going to have to fight. Right. And Julian Williams is capable of doing that. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a tough guy. Um, you know, you just it's tough to pick against Hurd at this point. Right. You know, it really is. I mean, he's he's come back from an injury now. I think he's, he's, he's settled. He's 100%. And, uh, you know, he's... Uh, he might just be more of the now fighter than than J Rock, but it's a, it's a good matchup. Absolutely, yeah. You know, Hurd, Hurd's another one of those guys who starts slow, and 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 Julian can can get you in trouble if you start slow. So I think that's that's going to be a really uh, interesting one. Um, 
Well, a rematch of Burchelt and uh, Francisco Vargas. I mean, I don't know. That one was so one-sided the first time around. You see it uh, being any different this time around? I don't think so. I don't yeah. think so. Um, you know, I, I see a similar type of fight. Um, you know, they, these are two very, very exciting fighters. Right. Uh, the division is, again, sort of like, you know, like some of the other divisions in boxing, somewhat wide open. Bichelt might make an argument that he's the best. Uh, you know, you got Tevin and, and a couple other guys. Um, Davis, but, uh, yeah. I think, uh, I think Bichelt will come out. Yeah, of course, Tank Davis, I, I don't know how much longer he'll be 130, but right. you'd like to see, uh, you know, Tank Davis and in and, and, and matchups at 130 or 135, you know, very attractive for him. Yeah, the Brochelle fight. We don't know how good he is yet, Kurt. You know, we really don't. Absolutely. And Brochelle, to me, looks he, he looks like from the waist up, he's a middleweight. <laughs> you know, he's like this huge junior yeah. lightweight. Right. Uh, with a lot of power. Yeah. Him, him I don't know Davis. how he makes weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So Showtime. Yeah, I'd love to see that fight. You know, a little cross-pollination. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Showtime, uh, May 18th. Uh, you know, you got Deontay and uh, Dominic Brazil. Bad blood in this fight. Um I really think this is going to be an interesting fight. I mean, it, it could be a blowout, but, um, you know, Brazil's one of these kind of Rocky-type guys who, who who takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got a lot of heart, and he's huge, and he hits hard. I mean, how do you see that one going? Well, uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of personal animosity between the two. You know, they had a little incident and uh, a few months back, and, you know, Brazil has, has surprised us in some ways. Um you know, winning fights that he looked like he was about to lose. So he's a legitimate challenger, no doubt about it, a top 10 challenger. And I, and I think Deontay, because of the last fight where he showed so much vulnerability, lose, you know, in my eyes, losing to Fury, um, right. Right. you know, th- that almost adds attractiveness to him as a fighter. I mean, you, you have a vulnerable guy who has the punch he has. That makes for a very entertaining fighter. And, and I think, you know, I think we see that with Wilder and maybe just to a little lesser degree with Joshua also. Right. So, you know, uh, and the the other thing about the fact that the big three in the heavyweight division for now, at least, are not fighting each other, that gives that that creates a, a, a field where you need more fighters to fight them. Right. If they were only fighting each other. Well, then, you know, Brazil wouldn't get a chance. And, you know, we have a couple of heavyweights, Jermaine uh, Franklin and, and Otto Valin on our card tonight. Right. You know, they're not at that level yet, but there's hope for those guys because there's going to be you know, if, they, if they advance, there'll be fights for them. Big right. fights for them because the big three are going to need each need other guys if they don't fight each other. So it opens up the field a little bit and gives fighters opportunities who might not otherwise get them. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess I'll, I'll give you two more because I know you got to get going. But speaking of uh, guys coming up to fight heavyweights, you've got Alexander Usyk coming up to to fight uh, Carlos Takam. Uh, how do you see that fight going? And 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 do you think Usyk is a guy who could uh, who could take over the division? Well, I don't see Usyk taking over, but he's going to be fun to watch because he's going to bring a totally different element to the heavyweight division. You know, he's not going to be a puncher. Um, he's, his footwork is maybe second to Loma, you know, in boxing. And in this era of the giant heavyweight and the big three are all giant heavyweights, um, it'll be fun to have a, a, a boxer, you know, kind of a pure boxer. Um, but, you know, you look at history and with the exception of Evander and maybe David Hay, you know, how many cruiserweights have really made a big market heavyweight? A lot of them have tried because that's where the money is. Right. Um, can Usyk do it? Well, geez, he has, you know, pedigree like nobody, obviously, and uh, usually successful as a cruiserweight, but can he carry that? You know, when, when push comes to shove in a tough fight against a big punching heavyweight, 
you know, is he going to be able to use that movement and that skill that he, that he's was so successful with at 200 pounds? I don't know, but I, I don't see him dominating the division, but I certainly think he can beat someone like the cam. And, uh, until he fights the very best, I don't, I don't think he's going to be in any danger of losing. Right, right, right. Yeah, I really think it's interesting because I mean he fought in the in in the amateurs in the uh, World Series of Boxing, uh, not to be confused with the World Boxing Super Series. But he fought at heavyweight, and I remember him beating Joe Joyce, and it was a really interesting fight because Joyce is a yes. very busy, big heavyweight, and uh, uh, but Usyk showed he could handle someone that size and with that power. So uh, really interesting yeah. to see him. And progress. if I remember correctly, he he beat he beat Joyce pretty easy. He, he yes. dominated that fight. Yeah. Joyce had his moments, but yeah. Yeah, for the most part, it was all Usyk. And, and uh, you know, a, a skilled, yeah. uh, smaller guy. Hey, you know, Michael Spinks had some had some uh, you know success at heavyweight as well. Chris Bird. Um, you know, hey, Wilder only weighed, like, what, 210, 215 in his last fight. So, um, you know, give uh, you know, right. Usyk. Right. Uh, Usyk could definitely make some noise. So one last fight I'll ask you about is uh, at the Garden June 1st. Um, you know, Anthony Joshua and, uh, Jarrell Big Baby Miller going to get it on. Um, should be a really interesting fight. I mean, do you give Miller any chance in that fight? You know, you have to give him a little bit of a chance because again, Joshua's shown some vulnerability and also, you know, Miller is undefeated and, you know, hasn't really been fully tested, hasn't fought the highest level of competition. So, you know, under the theory of you never know how good an undefeated fighter is, you have to give him a chance. To me, the most attractive part of that fight is the venue. Um, Joshua having never fought in America before and Big Baby being the, the New Yorker, you know, from Brooklyn. So I, I think it's going to be a really good atmosphere there. And, um, you know, Joshua's opening himself up to a whole new audience. Uh, as big as he is and to boxing fans, as accomplished as he is, and, you know, along with Wilder, the number one heavyweight in the world, there are a lot of American fight fans never heard of the guy. Let's face it. You know, there was a time, Kurt, in our day where if you didn't fight in New York, if not even the Garden, how big could you have been? Well, times change. And and Joshua became a a pretty big superstar without fighting in America. But I think he should have done this a long time ago. And I think the significance of the fight is as much economic in terms of Joshua opening himself up to a new market as, as it is in terms of the matchup. Absolutely, absolutely. And you've got, you know, it's funny because you've got Deontay fighting, you know, a couple weeks earlier at the Barclays. And, you know, these guys are, you know, obviously it's it's about money, it's about percentages and, you know, all those boring things with negotiation. But I think, you know, how many tickets each sell is, is definitely going to be a, a big deal. You know, I mean, you know, if, if Joshua can come over here and sell out the garden and let's say, you know, Wilder, you know, doesn't sell out the Barclays. I mean, you know, then Joshua's definitely going to hold that over his head. But if Joshua tanks here, you know, that's 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 a negotiating chip for Wilder. So on the business end, it, it's 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 yeah, yeah, too. yeah. I think I think the difference between Wilder and Joshua as as economic entities is that Joshua now has been you know selling out huge arenas in in the UK for a while now, eighty ninety thousand Wembley and etc. But I think Wilder's growing. You know, I think right. his TV ratings have been higher lately. Um, and and the, the Fury fight did very well on pay-per-view, relatively speaking. So I think I think Wilder's growing in terms of recognizability and the 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 uh, the Q factor, shall we say? Um, and uh, you know, he'll get he'll get bigger. I'm glad the fight's on Showtime, and and uh, I think uh, it's going to be an entertaining fight, and it'll add to to uh, Wilder's uh, profile. Right. I mean, do you, do you think there's any possibility that that fight gets made this year? Um, 
Wilder and and Joshua. I mean, Zone was throwing out some ridiculous numbers for for Deontay to to make that fight. I mean, you see it happening in 2019. It would be nice. I I think 2020 is probably more logical. I think Usyk could get a shot, you know, at Joshua. Uh, it's obviously an easy fight to make because uh, they're both the Zone fighters. Um, you know, where does Wilder go? I you know, does he want to fight Luis Ortiz again? No, I wouldn't. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't right. want to fight him again. Um, but that's that's a very attractive fight. So it's not like they don't have other fights. Um, you know, what I hope, and this is maybe a simplistic approach, but what I hope is that when these two guys leave their doors every day, that enough people, the public, says to them, hey, Anthony, when are you going to fight Wilder? I mean, obviously it happens, but I hope it happens more and more to the point where they get fed up hearing it and they go to their promoters, make the fight. Right. I don't care what it's on. I don't care if. 14 people see it, just make the friggin' fight, you know? And that, and, that, and I think that that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but I think that does have an effect on these fighters, and, and I hope it happens because, uh, you know, we, we've been lucky in a sense that the fight is still there. Right. You know, there's no guarantees in boxing. Right. You know, you, you can get, they're both vulnerable fighters. You can get knocked out. Right. So if one of them gets knocked out, then, then where are we? You know, right. so let, let's hope it happens before something something nutty and unexpected happens. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I, I saw an interview with Eddie Hearn, and, and it's my experience too, like exactly like you said. I mean, listen, if the fighter wants to make it, you know, if a fighter wants a fight to happen and, and you're in negotiations, they can make it happen, you know? I mean, it, it's I don't think it's Al and, and Shelly and, and Eddie who are holding this fight up. I think... You know, I mean, I, right now they have a, a difference, you know, in, in it seems like it's a difference of like 10 percent in the negotiations. If, if one of the fighters mm-hmm. just decides one day, you know what, I just want this fight, you know, let's, let's just take the fight. Right. I mean, you can't like just openly defy the fight. You're representing the fighter. You know, you got to go with what they want to do. So really, exactly. In, in the end, it, it really is the fighter who makes the decisions. But uh, listen, Steve, I, I know you yeah. got to really. And, and also. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're really negotiating also for more than one fight. You know, you're right. negotiating for a rematch, depending on what happens. These are heavyweights. You know, if one guy's way ahead of the other and the other guy comes back and scores a knockout, well, you do it again. Right. You know, so it's more than just one fight, and there's more money to be made than will just seem to, you know, just be from the first fight. So Right, and, and these guys, to consider as well. if you get too cute, you know, and like you said, there's dangerous fighters out here. Usyk could beat Joshua, you know, Fury could beat Wilder. If if you turn down this massive fight, which, you know, you, it's obviously the biggest fight for both guys. They'll make the most money fighting each other. I mean, why get cute about it? Just right. make the fight, you know. Get, you know, take the bird in hand, make that money. And like you said, you know, if it's a good fight, you know, uh, you know, you've got a rematch and you, you, you could make even more money. So uh, to me, you know, it, it's, and, and you it's know, Curtis, marinated enough. <laughs> yeah. One last point, too, which which, again, might be a little naive, but I, I, I'd like to think being an optimist that it's not naive to say this. What about legacy? You know, the, right. the fighters. Maybe it's not the fighter's job to determine how great he is all time. That's that's more like your job and my job. I get that because um, we're the quote unquote historians in the media. But you'd like to think that, you know, when when Anthony Joshua's finished and when Deontay's Wilder's finished, they don't, you know, the the, the comma after their name is not going to be who never fought Anthony Joshua, who never fought Deontay Wilder. You know, that's how they're going to be remembered. And I, I think that's right. a horrible way to be remembered. And if you want to be great and you want to be an all time great, you got to take risks. You know, Absolutely. every great fighter has done it. So Absolutely. let's let's hope that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question. Well, I know you got a busy day ahead. Uh really appreciate you taking the time to chop it up with me and you know, good luck with the show tonight and uh take care, Steve. Really appreciate it, man. Kurt, 
I appreciate it. It's great. Always great talking to you, and uh, we'll do it again down the road. All right. All right, my man. We'll talk to you later. All right, Kurt. Thanks so much, man. I enjoyed it. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and Ring TV and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. I'd like to thank my good friend, the incomparable Steve Farhood, for taking the time out of a busy day to speak with me. Um, If you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. Really appreciate it. It helps new listeners find the podcast. Also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com. Features quotes and background on my interview with Steve. Until next time, so long, everybody. Did you get what you was looking for?